Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. In this 30-minute Policy Pulse discussion, we're going to be discussing and zeroing in on those welfare proposals in the Biden administration's American Families Plan. We'll also hopefully be getting to discussing alternative policy reforms that would build on rather than tear down the successes of the last 25 years. Before we get going, I'd like to introduce Matt Weidinger, who has joined us here from the American Enterprise Institute. Over there, he is the Rowe Fellow in Poverty Studies, so he's a perfect fit for our discussion today because his work at AEI focuses on safety net policies, including cash welfare, child welfare, disability benefits, and unemployment insurance. Before joining AEI, Matt served as the Deputy Staff Director of the House Committee on Ways and Means and as the longtime Staff Director of its Subcommittee on Human Resources, which actually has jurisdiction over all of these safety net programs. I'd also like to highlight that he was a primary staff author of the landmark 1996 welfare reform law. You've heard of it before, hopefully. So he has the ideal background to walk through all of these Biden administration proposals. Thank you for joining the discussion today, Matt. Pleasure. Um, today we'll be walking to, through two of the program and expansions in the Biden fa family plan uh, proposal to permanently transform the child tax credit and unemployment insurance. First, let's dive in to what's happening with the child tax credit. In the March past COVID stimulus bill, the child tax credit was expanded, but this change was only authorized for one year. Now the Biden family plan wants to make the changes to the welfare state permanent. Matt, can you walk us through where we've seen proposals like the child tax credit expansion before and why it's a flawed idea? Sure. So as you mentioned, the um, American Rescue Plan, the March $1.9 trillion uh, Biden stimulus plan, took what was previously this child tax credit and um, transformed it into something different, into uh, something that supporters call a child allowance. Um, the American Families Plan contemplates officially extending that through 2025, but I think that's just simply a cover for, that's, those are the cheapest years for supporters to extend it. Uh, because after that, it would cost slightly more because under prior law, the child tax credit would become less generous. So they're kind of, supporters kind of saying, you know, wink and a nod, we really want this to be permanent. We're only willing to pay for in the sense of proposing more spending for just a couple of years, but I don't think anybody should be put off from that timing or, you know, from that technical timing. Supporters want this to be permanent law going forward forever. That is... Terrifying. So what exactly is the expansion? What was the child tax credit like? What is it traditionally like? What is it transformed into now? Sure. Um, um, maybe what's best is for me to kind of walk through kind of that and some of the basic themes that I see from this. So if, if that makes sense, maybe I'll just proceed that way. So basically what I see is going on are kind of four themes. The the child tax credit, the transformation uh, into the child allowance is really like converting this program, which was previously about promoting work, into something much more like the pre-welfare reform welfare system that paid millions of parents who were non-working um, a check every month. That also has the dynamic of turning this program, turning the uh, IRS, which is operating this program, into Americans, America's number one welfare paying agency. 
Um, that also has the dynamic of, by in effect, creating UBI for parents, stoking demand for UBI for everybody else. So if, if you're for UBI, you may be for uh, this, this policy. Um, but I, I think there's some really strong reasons why people should not be for UBI. And then finally, it, amazingly, this policy actually has provisions in it that promote abuse. They basically say to parents, if you misrepresent the location of your child, you can keep even more of the child allowance payments than, uh, than basically the sticker price suggests. So um, if it's okay with you, I'll just kind of walk through those principles and sort of explain why all that is the case. So making this like the pre-welfare reform system. So before 1996, the nation operated something called AFDC. That was uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children program. It, its legacy dates back to the New Deal. Bill Clinton campaigned in 1992 on a promise to end that program, end welfare as we know it, because that, that program and its payments of checks to non-working parents in almost all cases every month had become a way of life and all sorts of negative implications for kids and parents and society and you name it. So in its place, Republicans in Congress in 1996 drafted a new system that said benefits were payable to income to, to low-income parents, but they were expected to work and states were expected to have them be in work or at least training or something in exchange for those benefits. That basically transformed, helped transform our system into something that philosophically was more akin to work supports. So you, for a long time, you heard a lot of people talk about how things like um, Medicaid for people leaving welfare or additional childcare were really work supports. And I think that was healthy and, and had bipartisan support. Not only do you have Republicans in Congress drafting the law, Democrat President Bill Clinton signed it. Uh, actually, um, a majority of Democrats in Congress supported the 1996 welfare reform law. And then the child tax credit was actually created right after welfare reform that had that same sort of dynamic. It said for people who went to work, parents, um, we were going to give them a tax break. Eventually, that evolved into something different and now something completely different, as we'll talk about more. But after those changes, after that sort of transformation of welfare into a work support system, we had record increases in the number of people most likely to go on welfare, low-income single moms, um, who were working and receiving earnings. And as a result, poverty plunged uh, it, you know, in dramatic fashion in the late 1990s and continues to this day. Um, as far as the child tax credit goes, over time that grew and eventually we got to a system that as a result of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was paying parents as much as $2,000 per child. So that's kind of the pre-American Rescue Plan child tax credit. But it was more than that. That payment was only payable to parents who were working. And at lower income levels, the amount that parents received went up as they worked and earned more. So again, it was a work support system. Child tax credit was a work support system that was reserved for parents who work. The American Rescue Plan said, done with that. We are converting this into what supporters call a child allowance, which is paid to parents whether they are working or not. And not only that, it increased the amount from $2,000 to $3,000 for older children, $3,600 for kids under the age of six. Um, so again, that kind of eviscerated the sort of pro-work features of the child tax credit um, and inserted something that's much more akin to the former welfare system. Um, I actually looked at the amounts that states were paying in AFDC, the previous welfare system, in 1996, adjusted for inflation for a mom with two young kids. And in 21 states, the child allowance, this new system that, that was created in the American Rescue Plan, is actually more generous than AFDC used to be. So it is literally a more generous welfare system 
and, and the, the biggest increases in benefits are focused on people who are not working or working very little. Um, so that's the kind of general dynamic. As I mentioned, that would turn the IRS into America's biggest welfare paying agency. So the child tax credit is, has been a combination of tax relief and a benefit payment. So for people who don't pay taxes, there's this feature of the child tax credit called refundability. Refundability is kind of a misnomer. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost an Orwellian term because it makes it sound like money is being paid by workers to the IRS and then refunded to them. It's actually the opposite of that. Refundability in the context of this program means somebody worked, which is good, but didn't work enough to reach the income tax entry point. So basically they're working part-time, they're a parent, you know, it's good that the child tax uh, credit promotes that. Um, but the refundability feature of the current child tax credit actually pays them money without their having paid income taxes into the system. The child allowance takes that to a whole new level and makes the entire payment refundable in the sense of if you work, pay no taxes. In fact, don't work at all and pay no taxes, obviously, um, you would get the full $3,000 or $3,600. If you look at that sum total of the new refundability in this policy, the refundable spending, the spending associated with paying people who are not working and paying taxes, um, or I'm sorry, paying people who are not paying taxes, is about 80% of the new spending. That converts a program that was previously mostly about tax relief into one that's mostly about increased spending. And if you look at just that refundable side of this new program, it's far bigger than any welfare program that we have today. It's bigger than food stamps. It's bigger than the SSI program for disabled, disabled kids and adults. It's bigger than even the TANF program, right? The TANF program is actually pays relatively few people checks and, uh, today. Um, and this program is way bigger than that in terms of its annual spending. So by that standard, we're really converting the IRS into America's number one welfare benefit payer. Um, I said uh, that, you know, des described how that's really kind of like UBI for parents. Um, it, it is. And I think non-parents would quickly notice. So just like the nation developed um, a system of childless EITC payments for adults who are working but don't have kids, Pretty sure uh, there's going to be pretty strong demand for childless child allowances at some point. Like, you know, it, the, the non-parents in the country will notice when their neighbors are getting checks every month to help them pay for rent and pay for food and the car and, and all that stuff. And there will be demand for exactly that. Um, the, the one thing about that is, too, that, that to really bear in mind, all this stuff has a cost. So child allowances because of the kind of weird dynamic about for five years, it, it costs less than a, you know, the annual cost of a permanent extension because the child tax credit was gonna go down under prior law in, in 2026. All that, if you fill in that hole and say, what if we made child allowances permanent? Over the next 10 years, this would cost $1.5 trillion, a lot of money. If that then results in demand for childless child allowances, basically payments to everybody else, UBI for all, some of those UBI proposals cost as much as $6 trillion a year. So federal government spends something on the order of $4 trillion now. So you're talking about, you know, more than an order of magnitude larger federal government with naturally, if anybody actually wanted to try to pay for that, you know, massive tax increases uh, to pay for that or, 
you know, if we're going to use modern monetary theory to somehow suggest that pays for that, you know, if you think today's inflation is is a concern, you just, you know, you got another thing coming. It's it's going to be far worse. Um, Robert Doerr and I, uh, by the way, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal on this point about the, um, turning uh, this into UBI for everybody else. And then the final point I'd make is is really it's kind of a fascinating kind of take on how the left has come to think about um, benefit payments overall. Um, so there's really an extraordinary feature that was built into the uh, American Rescue Plan policy that involves child allowance payments to parents with whom children don't live. So that may sound kind of weird, but just you know, back out for a second and, and you'll quickly understand why. So single parent families, right? Mom and dad, they're not living together. Kids may move from one household to another, living with mom one year, moving, uh, living with dad another year. Um, in fact, millions of sort of changes in residence by kids happen every year. And it's, and it's most likely to happen kind of among lower income households because those are the most likely households to not have two married parents. So, you know, more disruption, more instability in the, the kids. So movement of kids kind of makes sense. So if the IRS thinks that a child is living with mom now, because last year mom filed a tax form claiming the child as a dependent, the IRS is automatically going to start come July sending mom a check for the monthly share of these new child allowances going out. So if the kid's under six, the check's going to be $300 a month. If the kid's over six, it's going to be $250 a month. Let's take the, the younger kid example. So six months of payments of $300 a, a month will be $1,800 that will flow to mom in that case even if the child moved on December 31st last year to live with dad and live with dad all year. So dad naturally next year when he files his taxes for calendar year 2021 will claim the child is dependent and voila, a $3,600 child allowance will be inserted with his tax refund or you know, however that, that all is gonna work out. But here's the kicker, mom who the child didn't live with this year gets to keep the $1,800 because the Democrat policy uh, in the American Rescue Plan says, you know what, we're just gonna waive as much as $2,000 in annual misspending in these child allowances. Um, and that's it, it, you know, up to relatively reasonable income levels. This is for single parents making as much as $40,000 could keep the up to $2,000 in misspending per year. So in effect, what that means is the real maximum child allowance in cases like this, it's not $3,600 per year for young kids, it's $5,600 per year shared across parents. If you think about how benefit programs work and you think about human nature, what does that do? That actually encourages parents to not accurately reflect where children are living when, you know, when they're, they're informing the IRS about the child's residence for purposes of these benefit programs, and maybe even you know, go further than that and, and you know, actually outright you know, misrepresent the presence of kids, which certainly isn't the kind of mobility that people think about for kids, and it's certainly not the kind of mobility that we want. It's also the case the IRS is going to be overwhelmed with just administering these tens of millions of dollars of checks. They currently, this is one of the number one reasons why the EITC has uh, erroneous payments, and the EITC has, has for decades literally had 25% uh, waste and error in that program. So, you know, we certainly don't need to create, we certainly don't need to basically promote um, more of that kind of erroneous payments, especially if, you know, the, the bottom line for parents is a financial gain that they get to keep. And specifically because Democrat policy in, the, in this uh, you know, current law that they want to make permanent would 
in effect uh, promote just that. So that's all the temporary stuff that's being done in effect for calendar 2021 and will be paid out over the next nine months or so given the sort of tax filing season next year. But again, like we said, the American Rescue or the American Families Plan would extend all of that through 2025. And really that's kind of just a show for how supporters really want to make this permanent forever, which has you know, enormous costs and, and clearly would have some pretty significant um, fraud and abuse issues attached to it that I think we'll only come to see over time, but you can already mm -hmm. see it's, it's literally embedded, it's right in the law. And you know it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that that's gonna be a pretty significant problem down the line. All of this is extremely concerning. Um, so we're seeing a pre-1996 pre-welfare reform movement. We're seeing the IRS being turned into a welfare agency. We're probably gonna see UBI extended even beyond parents. And we're going to see an increase in fraud. A lot of the advocates for this new child allowance, this permanent child allowance, this $300 a month or $250 a month are saying that it will decrease child poverty. Why are they saying this? And is that true if we're returning to a pre-welfare reform kind of benefit? So um, I, I think what you're seeing is people applying math to government programs without using logic and uh, sort of our country's history when it comes to thinking about these questions. You know, yeah, if, if the government spins up its money-making machine and sends out checks to people, it can make people, it can appear to make people less poor, right? So, um, but that will be despite the contrary effects of discouraging work and earnings which really, you know, I don't think there's there's a whole lot of question in normal Americans' minds that work and earnings are the way to solve poverty. But of course, that's not the way that liberals in Washington, D.C. think about these things. They think, oh, if only the government sent out bigger checks to more people, that's really the long-term solution to poverty. Um, you know, we saw before uh, welfare reform, that was the type of thinking in the AFDC program. If only more people collected AFDC checks every month, um, we would we would solve poverty obviously didn't happen but what we've had what we've had in the decades since then is really bipartisan support as i said for a work support system that said what can we do to promote and ultimately expect people to support themselves and their families because that's the best way for uh, families to really alleviate poverty and the answer was well we need to reorient these programs so that they're more about helping people go to work encourage them for go to work going to work and actually rewarding them financially for going to work the child allowance in effect does exactly the opposite. So, you know, like I said, the, the if you run through the universe of the people who are receiving some, uh, some benefit from the child allowance compared to the child tax credit, the people who receive the biggest increase in benefits are those who don't work at all. So if you're not working today, you receive a zero child tax credit. Under the child allowance, you'll receive $3,600 or $3,000, depending on the age of the child, and multiply by the number of kids that you get. If you're working a little bit today and you receive, you're in the what's called the refundable range of the child tax credit, you're receiving between one and $1,400 in assistance from the government. Those folks would also get the flat $3,000 or $3,600 uh, per month under this. So that's the sort of second most, uh, second biggest increase. The people with the smallest increase are those who are actually working and paying taxes, who get up to $2,000 under the current child tax credit. And then, of course, it fades out uh, entirely for people who work and earn too much, right? So, uh, you know, these these policies are oriented in the direction of being most generous to folks who are not working. And I don't think it should be surprising 
that in the end what will result from exactly that we'll get what we pay for we'll get less people working because more people will value their leisure they'll value time off from work they'll value not working if they can stitch together these benefits some unemployment benefits snap state benefits you know you, you name it um, folks will will find a way that's kind of what we saw before and that tends to not be good for kids because working when, when parents work, they have an example for kids. They, you know, that's the long run way to lift families out of poverty. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for walking us through the tax credit. It really does seem like a complete transformation of the safety net from being a work support to being a work disincentive, which would be very unfortunate. And speaking of work disincentives, I'd also like to touch on unemployment insurance because last year when COVID started uh, in the CARES Act, we saw the Congress passed a $600 a week unemployment insurance bonus for anyone who lost their jobs. And it's been scaled down to $300 a week, which is still incredible. But states, especially Republican-led states, are seeing that this is having such a drastic negative effect on their economies coming back to life that 25 Republican-led states have opted out of at least this $300 a week unemployment insurance federal bonus. But there are other aspects of unemployment insurance that the federal government has been doubling down on. Can you walk us through some of those and what the Biden plan proposes to do with them? Sure, The so the $300 per week, uh, four or $600 a week as you described, is really the thing that people have latched onto because that gets added to other unemployment benefits. It gets added to state unemployment checks, it gets added to the continuation of those unemployment checks for long-term unemployed folks. It gets added on to the new, um, what's called pandemic unemployment assistance program that's really rife with, with fraud and abuse and you know has seen historic levels of, of uh, misspending. So the $300 gets a lot of attention, but it's really those other federal programs that are the reason why so many people are in a position to collect the $300. Right now, there's the breakdown of unemployment benefits in America. There's, there's about 4 million people who are collecting state unemployment checks. That's the first 26 weeks in a lot of states. There's 12 million people who are collecting unemployment checks because the federal government intervened in the pandemic and either provided extended benefits for people who exhaust state benefits at 26 weeks or provide this whole new pandemic unemployment assistance program that pays up to 18 months of total benefits. So like literally we are paying people since the pandemic struck in March of uh, 20, uh, 2020 to today, people have been consistently collecting unemployment benefits, not just the three, the originally the $600 per month on top of that or the $300 per month on top of that now, but a, an underlying benefit that continues until basically Labor Day weekend. President Biden recently said, in response to the $300 add-on that it's actually, it's good that it expires in 90 days, which I think rec is a recognition of the political um, peril here, where I think it's become pretty obvious. It's certainly obvious in the 25 states where um, Republican governors have op are now opting out. Like literally we're in week two, a four week period where half of the states are opting out of these extraordinary federal benefits. It's become obvious that $300 is a hurdle to returns to work. Because in about 40% of the cases, and I would say in, in we know in far more of the cases in especially red states where the flat $300 raises total benefits above wages that someone would make, it's a huge disincentive to work. Um, so that 
is going to be an interesting dynamic for well, what's going to happen on, on Labor Day. I think the $300 is likely to go away because it seems like even the president has thrown that uh, over the side of the boat. But an, an equally important, I think in some ways, maybe even more important question is what, what happens with these underlying federal programs? Are we going to continue paying extended unemployment benefits in months 21, 22, 23, and 24? You know, eventually you're kind of getting into sort of European levels of unemployment benefits. And we know that that type of long-term unemployment is not good for people. It's not good for their health. It's not good for their employment prospects. They make less when they eventually go back to work. And meanwhile, we know that the economy is starved for workers, not just in those 25 red states. It's in a whole lot of the remaining primarily blue states. So lots of interesting stuff ahead, but some really major um, considerations for Congress. And, you know, I, I think what we're basically seeing is it's time for pandemic benefits to end. You know, mm -hmm. with the economy reopening, with masks off, with vaccines widely available, um, the, these sorts of benefits have now outlived their usefulness and actually they're counterproductive in the sense of deterring people from going back to work. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think that's a great summary of how we may have needed some form of benefits and some form of relief at the beginning of COVID when we weren't, we didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't know what was necessary to control COVID. But as we're coming out of it, we really need to focus in that these are these are COVID-specific benefits and they should be temporary and targeted only to COVID. But that's not what the Biden American Families Plan is looking for. They're looking for a permanent expansion of these plans and that will hurt the economy and it will all, mostly hurt low-income individuals who will turn to these benefits instead of re-entering the economy. Right. It's um, it's interesting. So the American Families Plan is a little bit oblique on this question of what to do about unemployment benefits and basically said the president wants to work with the Congress um, on this. And then you ask yourself, well, what are the Congress's benefits, uh, Congress's proposals for uh, extending these benefits? And basically, if you had to summarize them in a sentence, it's take the pandemic benefits and make them permanently available. Now, you know, sometimes they're going to trigger on if the unemployment rate's high or um, nationally or states, and there's all sorts of triggers and moving parts and, you know, bells and whistles. But the bottom line, the idea that the federal government, either on its own by nationalizing the unemployment benefit system or by forcing the states to do its will, will guarantee that there will be bigger unemployment benefits paid to more people for longer periods of time is built into these, the policies that federal lawmakers are making. And they're not just like, you know, people, random people on the streets. This is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee with jurisdiction over the nation's unemployment uh, insurance program. I mean, in fact, what you're seeing is the playing out of what Rahm Emanuel said after the Great Recession, or before the Great Recession, I'm sorry, during the Great Recession, when he said, you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. It's taking a pandemic and taking the benefits response that, like you said, Back in March 2020, when basically the government was throwing people out of work and there was a desire to make people whole by giving them unemployment benefits that roughly matched what the average worker was making, understanding some people were going to get more, some people were going to get less than, than that average, um, it's taking that dynamic and saying, well, that should be how we run these programs forever and ever. That's a prescription for disaster, including because it's going to force there to be higher taxes forever and ever, which are focused primarily on lower wage workers. Because in the unemployment insurance world, you're talking payroll taxes. Then the federal side are, are the first, the first uh, seven thousand dollars, and in most states, it's taxes on the first fifty thousand dollars or less in wages. So you're you're literally talking lower wage folks that are going to face the brunt of these additional tax hikes as a result of these policy changes. 
That is incredibly troubling. Um, thank you for walking us through both the child tax credit, I'm really going to call it a child allowance because that's what it currently is, and these unemployment insurance benefits that are keeping workers out of the workforce. Um, and also if they're permanently extended, hurting those same low-income workers that they're proposing to help. Um, the safety net proposals aren't safety net proposals, they seem to be more of a welfare state proposal. It, it's it's almost akin to a trap, right? So you're taking systems that have been work supports in the past and you're turning them into non-work supports, right? And you know, no one should be surprised when uh, as a result of that, fewer people are working and there, there's less earnings. You know, there, there's a sort of mythology that, oh, well, people will go and get more training, there'll be you know, more money available for childcare. Um, I, I, I don't believe that's going to be what ultimately results from this. People will be turning these benefits into less work, not more work. Mm -hmm. And we're ultimately going to see people locked out of our economy. Yeah. Well, we are exactly at 30 minutes. So, Matt, thank you very much for joining us today and summarizing everything that is included in this uh, the welfare portions of the Biden American Families Plan. And thank you to everyone who was able to join us today. Apologies again for our technical difficulties. All good. My pleasure.